Back to the call, somewhat conversion of Saul. Um, just in case you weren't here last week, we start with chapter 9, where we start with Saul, Paul, in earnest, at least for a little while. Uh, we saw him heading toward Damascus in Syria to arrest uh, these uh, Jews who were embracing Jesus as Messiah. Had his dramatic experience um, with, with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, it's recounted three times in the book of Acts. It's mentioned a few times. I'll show you an example this morning. It's, it's referenced um, very simply a few times in some of Paul's writings. But um, a, a very significant event, the life of the Christian story. So uh, he, um, he is blinded. Uh, we think probably by the light, the Shekinah glory of God shining in Jesus. He's blinded. Uh, he, he is led into Damascus, the city of Damascus there in Syria. Uh, keep praying for the Syrians. Keep praying for those in Turkey near the city of Tarsus. We're going to be back in Tarsus uh, again in today's text. Uh, Saul Paul is led into the city of Damascus. And um, this is where he's going to encounter Ananias. Uh, after he's led, after he saw is led into the city, uh, Jesus then goes to Ananias and sends him to uh, Saul, Paul. Um, so where we're going to pick up at today is in verse 17 of uh, chapter 9. This is where Ananias goes to Saul, Paul. So, 9.17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, this has always been the classical posture for praying for healing, laying his hands on him, he said, and look at this, brother Saul. So Ananias is a man of great faith. He believes what Jesus has said to him about Saul. I'm sure he's still doing this with fear and trepidation. Because he knows this Saul has been one that's acting like a ravaging beast trying to arrest and kill Christians. Uh, but he goes, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, he was converted or he gave his life to Christ. He accepted the Lordship of Jesus we think from the text, implying it, three days earlier on the road to Damascus. Uh, so three days after he um, commits to Christ, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, look at verse 18, uh, something that perhaps only a doctor like Luke would tell us. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Um, you know, if you... If you Google the word scales, about the best you're going to get is like a thick film or something over the eyes. Uh, maybe like a thick cataract or thick cataracts over both eyes. Uh, this, by the way, if you, if you read apocryphal books uh, like the book of Tobit, um, same thing happened to Tobit, uh, these scales on his eyes. So Paul, Saul's tradition would have known about this. But uh, evidently something like thick cataracts had covered his eyes, uh, perhaps again from the, the brilliant light. But anyway, Dr. Luke tells you something like scales fall from the eyes of, of Saul Paul, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Uh, the Barada River is, uh, runs through Damascus, not far from the street called Strait. So that's probably the river that they went to. Then he rose and was baptized. Um, and taking food, he was strengthened. Again, for those three days, he fasted and prayed. Uh, again, he had just come to Christ. His life had been turned upside down or perhaps right side up. Um, he'd been fasting and praying, and um, now he eats and he's strengthened. I want you to notice what happens now. Luke wants you to notice what happens now after um, Paul has um, come to Christ. He spent three days, 
and um, he's now baptized in the spirit and baptized in the water. Now look at the, the postscript, the post story. Uh, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. So he stays put in Damascus for a while. And immediately, this is an amazing verse if you stop to think about it, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Um, very few people in history go from being a persecutor of Christians to being a proclaimer, a preacher, an effective preacher of Jesus Christ in three-day period. Saul did. In a three-day period, his life so turned around, so changed, uh, he starts proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, and you're going to see that he has fruit. He does this well. He's not doing this like most typical three-day-old converts to Christ. Uh, he's going to do this. He's going to do it effectively. He's going to do it well. Uh, part of what that tells us or reminds us of is Paul was a brilliant man. Paul was a brilliant man. He had lived in the Greco-Roman world. He had also lived in the Jewish world. He knew the Hebrew Bible inside and out. So, of course, the only Bible the early Christians had was the Hebrew Bible, what, what we call the Old Testament. So um, just literally, when he regained his sight, he, regained his, he gained spiritual sight. So... Um, Almost overnight, he, he's reading the Old Testament differently. He knows the Old Testament. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. Remember, Paul says that. He knows the Old Testament, um, but almost immediately now he knows how to find Christ in the Old Testament. He knows how to see Christ in the Old Testament. He knows how to preach Christ from the Old Testament or the Bible. They're the only Bible they have at this point. And he's doing it. He's proclaiming. Um, notice in the synagogues, in Romans 1.16, Paul says, it's one of his um, uh, life verses, I think, uh, the gospel, he believes in the power of the gospel, it goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Paul continues to go to the Jew first. So here he's in synagogues, saying to these Jews in these synagogues in Damascus, um, and there, there's probably multiple, multiple synagogues in Damascus. You know how many people it takes? Well, actually, you know how many men it takes uh, to make a synagogue? Ten. As long as you have ten males, you can have a synagogue. So it could have been multiple, multiple synagogues throughout um, um, Damascus. If you go to a synagogue worship or a synagogue study and prayer, uh, if you go to synagogue today, you'll notice... Particularly if it's a small synagogue, and I've been in some very small synagogues, they have to wait till they get at least 10 men present before they can start. So uh, I know the synagogue in my hometown of Gastonia uh, is, is very, very small because the Jews all go to the beautiful synagogue in Charlotte. Um, so if you go there on Shabbat, they literally have to wait till they get 10 men in the room. And so they all don't come right on time. They have to, you have to have 10 men present. Um, ten Jewish men, ten Jewish males to have a synagogue. But if you got ten, you can have a synagogue. If you if you walk through Jerusalem today, particularly in the old city, uh, there are tiny little looked like looks like holes in the wall, and what you'll see um, is ten, eleven, twelve men in there studying Torah together. So a synagogue really can be a small group. Um, again, there's probably multiple reasons. Jesus had 12, uh, primarily to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. But again, you have to have at least 10 males in the Jewish tradition to function as a synagogue. So we don't know how many synagogues are in Damascus. Paul's making his rounds. He's proclaiming Jesus in these Jewish synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. What's interesting about this, this is the only place in the book of Acts, where Jesus is referred to as Son of God. There's a quotation later in the book of Acts um, that refers, that is from God speaking to the Messiah and refers to the Messiah's Son. Son. But this is the only place in the book of Acts where Son of God is used. What's kind of interesting about this, evidently that was not something Luke said a lot. But he's telling you here, Paul says it. He is the Son of God. Um, 
And Paul's letters is there a lot. It's there a lot. So this, this is indicative, I think, of uh, great eyewitness reporting. This exactly sounds like something Paul would have been saying. Now, again, when you hear the phrase Son of God, church, that does not mean, and you know this, but you need to be reminded of this, in the Christian tradition that does not mean that Son of God is less than God. We are Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of Christians, I think, in their mind believe God the Father's up there. The Son of God's almost up there. And they don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. As Trinitarian Christian, there are three co-equal parts sharing the nature of God. Um, and in the Jewish world, by calling Jesus Son of God, that saying he has the nature of God. He is as much God as God is God. Um, my son is a Patterson as much as I am. He can't just use half of that last name. He gets to use that whole last name. He is my son, but he has, he has the same right to Patterson as I do. Uh, so in the, in the Jewish world, when they referred to Jesus as Son of God, uh, that's part of what became our Trinitarian theology. He is equal with the Father. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you're doing Christian theology, and this is core Christian theology, and if you're in a tradition that uses historic creeds, you, you remind yourself of this every time you use a creed. Uh, you know, God in three persons, one God, three, three expressions, they all share the nature. Uh, they're all three equal. So to say he's son of God doesn't mean he's any, any less than God the Father. So in the Jewish world, this was a radical thing to be saying. Um, you know, they, they were looking for a Messiah, but what they were not looking for is a Messiah who would be co-equal with God. And that is the Christian preaching. Uh, the Messiah was, the, was God visiting earth. Again, uh, the Son of God has the nature of, of God. So that's part of our, our Trinitarian theology. So that's what, that, that's what Paul is preaching in the synagogues. You know, you, you don't have to think long. It probably did not go over well in the synagogues. You're going to see that in a moment. You know, because here he's in a synagogue with these strong monotheists, one God, one God only, and they, they don't understand how he's squeezing somebody else into that one God. So um, it's not going to end well. Uh, you see that throughout Paul's life. He always went to the synagogue first because the people there knew the Hebrew Bible. They were already two-thirds of the way to Jesus. They had the Hebrew Bible. They were looking for a Messiah. He just had to say, let me... Let me tell you who this is. Um, he always went to the synagogues first. It didn't always end well. Uh, you see that frequently he's going to get run out of synagogues. Sometimes he preaches for as little as two or three Sabbaths, and then he gets run out of synagogues uh, because, of, because of who he is saying Jesus is. So look at verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed. That doesn't mean that they were thrilled with what he was saying, but they were amazed. Um, because this doesn't fit what they knew of this famous rabbi Pharisee Saul. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc, again, wild beast imagery, made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, this spirit, this person, this power, this presence? And has, not he, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? Uh, yeah, it, it's hard warming up to Saul for these people because of everything they knew. Uh, we're going to see a little bit later in the text that um, evidently Paul, Paul Saul was so instrumental in the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem here that when he lets up, the persecution lets up in Jerusalem. Uh, so he was famous as you know one of the head persecutors leading the pack for the early Christians. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews. I'm sure he did. We still confound the Jews. Uh, we're so Jewish in so many ways except this Jesus thing, where we think another human being, we think a human being, someone who walked this earth, is, 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 is part of the Godhead. 
Anyway, they conf he confounded the Jews, but um, he increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, and the word in the Greek there for proving means he's making a logical argument. He's using the scriptures, making a logical argument that Jesus was the Christ. And the word Christ is Greek for what Hebrew word? Messiah. So he's teaching this Jesus is Messiah, and he also happens to be son of God. Uh, he's not just uh, an agent of God. He, he is that, but he's more than just an agent of God. Uh, but but he's, he's doing large logical arguments to, to teach these Jews that this is the Messiah. So here comes something really interesting, and this is where it's important to, to know the whole book, not just your favorite passages. Verse 23, when many days had passed... Let me read this section together, and we're going to look at it as, as a whole. When many days passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. No surprise there. But their plot, was, their plot became known to Saul. No surprise there. Um, people love to gossip. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day, by night, day and night in order to kill him. But his, his disciples, his students, his pupils, Paul's pupils, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall and luring him in a basket. And then you notice verse 26, he goes to Jerusalem. Well, what's interesting here, we know, and we'll look at the text in a moment, we know from Paul's own writings that after his conversion, there in Damascus, he went somewhere for three years, right? Shake your head, yes. He went somewhere for three years. Where did he go for three years, according to the way he defines it. He went to Arabia for three years. Shake your head, yes, he did. I'm going to show you the text in a moment. So um, that comes from Paul's writings in, in Galatians, uh, that he goes to Damascus for three years before he goes to Jerusalem. So somehow in these verses I just read, somewhere you've got to stick a three-year trip to Damascus in here. Uh, there's two places. Um, New Testament scholars tend to stick this three-year trip to Damascus. Um, you can either stick it in. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, three years had passed, and this journey to, 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 to Arabia took place, uh, the Jews plotted to kill him. Or you can just put it between verses 25 and 26. Um, what complicates matters a little bit is in Galatians, I'm going to show you that text in a second because you need to insert that here. Uh, in Galatians, it says he went to Arabia, then back to Damascus, and then to Jerusalem. So that's why some people prefer to stick these three years in Arabia uh, in, in the midst of verse 23 because you got to get him back to Damascus, and then, you get him, then he gets to go to Jerusalem. So with that being said, um, turn to Galatians chapter 1. Fascinating text, and um, this is Paul's own writing about this experience. By the way, Arabia in Paul's world is not the same as Arabia in your world. Arabia in Paul's world was the Nabataean uh, Empire. We know that too from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We also know it from ancient history. If you ever, in other words, it's part of Jordan... Any of you ever been, some of you may have gone with me, any of you ever been to Petra in Jordan? That amazing place where uh, the treasuries, all this stuff, these buildings are carved into the stone. They just had a flash flood there about a month ago. Really got the tourist attention when that happened. Um, that's the Nabataean Empire. That's the Nabataean Empire. Uh, it was a fairly large empire, and as a matter of fact, the Nabataeans ruled even in Damascus. So um, that's, that's the Nabataean Empire. Let's look at Galatians chapter 1. Um, Paul's telling some of his story here, and it is kind of neat when he tells it. I'm glad that Luke tells it but, um, in Acts, but I, 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 we like hearing it from Paul. So look at Galatians chapter 1. Paul scatters autobiography throughout most of his letters. That's why you can take the bits and pieces you learn from Paul's letters and get it straight from Paul. But uh, I want you to look at what he's saying here as far as his, his, his season of uh, conversion or call to Christ. 
So, Galatians chapter 1, look at verse 11. For I'd have you know, brothers, and we could spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to see the high points, for the chronology particularly. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me is not, is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. And you've read Acts 9 now. You know who he received it from. He received it from Jesus himself. But he's making the argument here to the Galatians. I did not receive this gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, again, Luke gives you the details. Paul just points toward the event. So here's point, Paul pointing toward the event, the Damascus Road experience, a revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's, he's, he's saying Jesus showed, showed up, came and spoke to me. Anyway, he's saying he received the gospel straight from Jesus, not from anyone else. Verse 13, for you, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. One of the few places that word Judaism occurs in the Bible. Uh, that, that they were being called that by this point. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So that's how he's painting the picture of his Judaism. He's zealous for the tradition of his fathers. Verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born... Uh, Paul, like Jeremiah, like many of the others in the biblical story, knows that he was called before he was born. God had predetermined what Saul, Paul, would do. So f before he was born, that's in the womb. Just like, you know, the first person to ever recognize Jesus besides, besides Mary and um, probably Joseph um, was the baby John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth. Remember the story? The baby John the Baptist danced in the womb when um, when uh, Mary got into the presence of uh, when Martha got into the presence of the, the the pregnant Mary. Anyway, so here here Paul's saying he's been set apart since before he was born, and who called me by his grace. Look at verse sixteen. Was pleased to reveal his son to me. Again, there's the Damascus Road experience. Um, Paul almost has a, Paul, I think it was such a holy moment for Paul. He couldn't do what Luke did. Luke gives you the details of the experience. Paul just says, Jesus Christ revealed himself to me. Um, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Uh, you also can actually see it may, you can translate that, he revealed his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. And here, we're, here comes the trip to um, uh, Jerusalem and Arabia. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, so see the trip there? He's Damascus. He goes to Arabia, the Nabataean Empire, what we would call Jordan, for three years. Then he goes back to Damascus. Then he goes to Jerusalem. The point he's making here, which is what he says now, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Who is Cephas? Peter. That's his Aramaic name. I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Uh, that's not the James who has the one who's the brother of John. That's the James who is the natural half-brother of Jesus. Um, that's the James that became the head of the church in Jerusalem. That's the James that uh, writes the New Testament book of James. He says, I saw none of the other apostles, because by this point they've scattered. Remember, after the, um, some, several of them begin to scatter, uh, beginning after the time of the, the martyrdom of Stephen. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Uh, then he says, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. The point Paul's making over and over, and he does this throughout his writings, I didn't go get this second hand from Peter. And the other apostles weren't even in Jerusalem when I went. 
only James, who was not an apostle, you know, the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in Jesus um, until after resurrection. So when he goes to Jerusalem, the only apostle, original apostle he sees is Cephas, Peter, but James, the, the brother of Jesus, is there. Uh, so what he's saying is, I didn't get this secondhand, I got it firsthand. I got it firsthand. When Jesus revealed himself to me and God was pleased to reveal his son to me, um, i.e. Damascus Road experience. So um, here's his three-year trip to Arabia, and then he returns again to Damascus. That's what you've got to squeeze in some, somehow in these verses in Acts. Um, you can squeeze it in, in halfway through verse 23. I'm back in Acts now. Halfway through verse 23, when many days had passed. And, and again, three years could be um, like two-plus years. He's just rounding up to three years. When many days had passed, and it could be up to two to three years, and he had gone to Arabia, then he goes back to Damascus, because here he's, he's in Damascus. Because what you see here is a trip straight from Damascus to Jerusalem. And uh, Paul tells you himself he goes to Damascus. He goes to Arabia, then back to Damascus, then to Jerusalem. And again, the point is he's, he's arguing he, like Peter, is an apostle who has spent time with Jesus. He's not gotten this secondhand. Anyway, so the Jews plotted to kill him. Um, this could either be the first time he's in Damascus, probably the second time he's in Damascus, after, his, after he returns from Arabia. The Jews plotted to kill him. Let me back up. I wonder what he was doing in Arabia. Don't we wish you would have told us? I think he was having a desert experience. Again, that's why I point out where where the Nabataeans are. It is, Petra's beautiful, but it is wasteland. It is desert. It's part of a desert empire. Um, when Jesus was baptized, what did he do immediately? Go to the desert. Go to the, desert the Mount of Temptation to do battle with the enemy. So maybe Paul is doing the same thing. Most of us have always assumed it. We think, we think he was doing one of two things, probably both, in Arabia. He was on an extended religious retreat because he's doing this before he begins his worldwide ministry. So, yeah, he got a lot on the road to Damascus. He didn't get everything on the road to Damascus. He got a lot in his years as a Pharisee, knowing the Scriptures and the Hebrew tradition, but he still goes away for an extended period of preparation. Um. He's probably also, we know Paul pretty well, he's also probably preaching to the Nabataeans. Uh, but he's there in, 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 in Arabia, the Nabataean uh, empire. Um, but then he goes back to Damascus. Um, it's interesting, he makes sure you know he didn't go straight to Jerusalem. He's going to be doing this for a while before he ever runs into a Peter. He's not getting this second hand. So yeah, that's probably why he's doing in, in Arabia and what he called Arabia. Anyway, so the Jews plotted to kill him, verse 24. Their plot became known to Saul. Uh, notice he's still Saul after his conversion experience because he has both names throughout his whole life. They were watching the gates day by night, day and night in order to kill him. So they're watching the gates. To, they know he wants to escape the city of Damascus. So they're watching the gates. But um, Saul does the same thing David did, who did the same thing that the um, spies in Jericho did. They were let down over the walls. Uh, you need to understand, and they'll show you a house in Damascus today that they'll say, here's Ananias' house. And um, it is still built into the ancient walls. Uh, that was typical in, in antiquity, that houses would be built up against the wall. That was a way to secure the wall, to build the wall, and give you one wall for your house that's already standing. So they, they were built into the wall. So uh, his, his disciples, his students, his pupils, um, which again, that's why this sounds like probably post-Arabia. Um, he, they, they, he's got his group there now, he's, he's teaching. Um, they help him escape. Uh, they're watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He makes a point in Second Corinthians chapter 11 where he references this, that he says this is a little disgraceful. Yeah, it is a little disgraceful. I mean, to have to kind of tuck your tail and run, and that's kind of what he's doing here. Um, but this is when he goes to Jerusalem. 
This is when he goes to Jerusalem. You've got to get Arabia in here somehow. This is when he goes to Jerusalem. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted... And by the way, there are four trips to Jerusalem by Paul. There are four trips in the book of Acts. There are four trips by Paul back to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, he goes to the temple. He goes to the temple to offer sacrifice. He goes to the temple uh, for rites of purification. Don't ever think Paul quit being a Jew. He added Jesus as the Jewish Messiah in his life. Paul is clear. I think he's clear. A lot of us think he's clear. Paul is clear that for the Jews who embrace Jesus... You kept being Jewish. You kept doing kosher. You kept following the law of Moses. What Paul argues, and some people misunderstand this, what Paul argues is if you're Gentile, you don't have to be Jewish and then Christian. You don't have to keep kosher. Paul never told his Jewish community they didn't have to keep kosher. So when you hear Paul saying what appears to be negative about the law, the law of Moses, um, Remember the context. He, he, he says you Christians don't have to keep ceremonial uh, civil law of Moses. You still have to keep moral law, Paul says. Uh, but he, as a Jew, kept to the ceremonial law. Uh, he, 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 he tried at times, as long as it didn't hinder his ministry, to keep kosher. Uh, but he, he, go, he would go back to the temple to worship. He didn't quit being a Jew when he became a Christian. So there's four trips back to the holy city. Uh, by, by Paul in the book of Acts. So he goes back. Um, and you can, you can if you, even if you haven't read the rest of this section, you can begin thinking how the folks there in Jerusalem are going to receive him or not. How the Jews are going to be feeling about what they're hearing and how the Christians are going to be feeling about what they're hearing concerning Saul. So he's, he has come to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples. Notice the word attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Well, that's pretty logical. They remember the old Saul. They remember the Saul they knew. They remember the Saul who is killing and arresting Christians, ravaging uh, Jerusalem like a wild beast, and then going to the high priest to get um, a certificate, to get authorization, um, uh, extradition orders to go to Damascus to arrest Jews who were becoming Christians. That's the Saul they knew. And now here he's back. Now, uh, three years have passed. Uh, here he's back and he says, Hello, guys, I'm one of you now. That was a hard sell. That was a hard sell to the Jewish, to the Jewish Christian community there in Jerusalem. And it makes perfect sense to us. I, I would have had a hard time warming up to him. I would have had a hard time trusting him. I would have had, I, you know, I would think he's trying to infiltrate the Christian community um, there in Jerusalem. So um, they did not believe him, but Barnabas. See the next two words, but Barnabas. You've already met Barnabas, one of the big heroes, I think, in the book of Acts. Barnabas, you were told in chapter 4, verse 36, Barnabas is his nickname. Do you remember what Barnabas' nickname Son of encouragement, son of consolation. Um, Barnabas was an encourager. There's a lot of reasons we love Barnabas. Every time you encounter Barnabas, he's helping somebody. He's encouraging somebody. Um, you know, remember when you first encounter him in chapter 4 and you're introduced to him, uh, he's selling property and giving the proceeds to the Christian community. Well, here you encounter him again. He's helping Saul. He's going to vouch for Saul. He's going to help Saul somehow um, become integrated into the Christian community. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Yeah, I'm sure that was a hard sale. They probably said, Barnabas, we love you, but you got to give us a little time to warm up to Saul. This is not the Saul we know. And, you know, most of our experiences, human beings change rarely, if at all. I mean, human change does not come easily. And here you've, you're seeing a night and day change in Saul. So... Um, 
Yeah, the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, they, they were having a hard time. But again, here's Barnabas stepping up, stepping up and helping Paul. He's going to become, later on in the book of Acts, he's going to join Paul, Saul, in, in some of his missionary travels. So yeah, we, we need to be more grateful for Barnabas. So Barnabas vouched for him. And, um, and I suspect that it took the community a little while, but they, they so believed Barnabas, and they theoretically knew, like we theoretically know, God can change people through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that. We don't really expect that very often, but we know that. That's what they were doing here with Saul. But look at verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Um, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Let, let me take a little tangent for a moment. You saw him baptized in the Spirit three years ago before he left Damascus the first time. He's baptized in water and he's baptized in the Spirit there under the ministry of Ananias. Um, it's interesting to watch some people deal with this text. He's baptized in the Spirit, and this is one of those places where you see someone baptized in the Spirit, and there's no reference to speaking in tongues. Uh, what you see is the evidence, the initial evidence, or the evidence of being baptized in the Spirit, which happened three days after he came to Christ. The, the evidence you see of Paul being baptized in the Spirit is not speaking in tongues here, you see people baptizing their spirit, speaking in tongues, other places in the book of Acts. It's not mentioned here. Um, but the evidence of being baptized in the spirit for Paul, and I would contend for basically the early Christian movement, was their boldness in preaching Jesus. That was the difference. Uh, they're baptized in the spirit. That baptism in the spirit is for the purpose of boldness. That baptism of the Spirit is for the purpose of your witnessing, your evangelism, your living for Christ, your ability to, be stand, to stand up fearlessly before others and preach Jesus. So that appears to be the initial evidence of Paul's baptism of the Spirit. Now, my Pentecostal friends and some of my charismatic friends would say, well, Luke just didn't tell you he spoke in tongues uh, when he was baptized in the Spirit. Now, you do know from 1 Corinthians. Again, you've got, there are two places in the Bible we learn about Paul. Here, as Luke tells us about Paul, and then in Paul's own writings. You do know in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul has an extensive conversation, discussion about speaking in tongues. Uh, Paul says, you remember this, I hope, I speak in tongues more than any of you. You remember Paul saying that? Shake your head, yes, he says it. Go look it up. I speak in tongues more than any of you. So he, he had the gift. He tells you he has the gift. Uh, it's just not displayed here. Now, again, if you're Pentecostal and somewhat, there's a difference between Pentecostal and charismatic. The news media doesn't know what the difference is, and we can talk about that some other time. There's a difference between Pentecostal and charismatic. All Pentecostals would say that the initial evidence of baptism in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. Some charismatics would. Um, the Bible doesn't make it clear that everyone who gets baptized in the Spirit speaks in tongues. Uh, I think this is an example. Now, again, I know there's a danger in making an argument from silence. You know, maybe... Luke doesn't say he spoke in tongues when he was baptized in the Spirit uh, because he just may think you should know that. Uh, so that's why an argument from silence is always dubious. Um, but it's certainly not referenced here that in his case, being baptized in the Spirit, um, the initial evidence you see of that is his, his, his holy boldness in preaching. Um, anyway, I'll offer you that no extra charge. So as you talk with your Pentecostal charismatic friends, because those of us that are not Pentecostal, charismatics are people that embrace Pentecostal theology. They just do it differently, and they're parts of other churches. Uh, charismatics would say, uh, you know, that speaking in tongues is 
is a is an evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But you know, they would not go so far. Many of them would not go so far as saying, if you don't speak in tongues, i.e., you're not baptized in the Spirit. Um, I think the the, the clearer stand, uh, which is really what the, the bulk of the church holds, other than strict Pentecostals, is that you can be baptized in the Spirit, and that may or may not be accompanied with speaking in tongues. Uh, again, if you look at the book of Acts, a case can be made that speaking in tongues is not always mentioned when you see people being baptized in the Spirit, but holy boldness is mentioned. So if you want to look for one primary evidence of being baptized in the Spirit is a holy boldness in proclaiming Jesus. Anyway, I offer you that no extra charge. Um, but you see him preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Uh, that's, that's a big part of what Acts wants you to see. That, that's there to sort of make our wimpishness pale by, comparis- by comparison. Here he's preaching boldly in a Jewish culture. Um, um, by the way, you know, even in Jerusalem today, it is illegal to proselyte, to preach Jesus. Um, you know, there's a Mormon university in Jerusalem, but they have to like sign on the dotted line. They will not proselyte. Uh, Jews don't like you proselyting them. So you got to do somewhat. I think you always have to do this with evangelism. You're like, you have to do what C.S. Lewis did with the Chronicles of Narnia. You have to smuggle it in. You have to, that's why you go to Jerusalem and teach English to, to people. And then on the side, you can say, have you heard about Jesus? But yeah, officially, you cannot even proselyte there today. Uh, the Jewish community does not take kindly to it. They didn't in Paul's day either. They didn't in Paul's day either. Um, anyway, he's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 29. And this is an amazing text. If you don't pay attention to history, you just miss it. And he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists. And you're not surprised by the next sentence, but they were seeking to kill him. Do you remember these Hellenists? These Hellenistic Greek Jews? They're the ones that killed Stephen. He's gone back to his old tribe. And he's preaching Jesus to them. Yeah, you talk about boldness. Yeah, we're wimps in so many ways. We don't even like people to accidentally discover we're Christians sometimes. Um, here he is preaching Jesus boldly in Jerusalem, and he goes back. Remember back in Acts 6, you're talk, you were told about the synagogue of the freedmen, and they were Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews from around the Greek, the Greek world there in Jerusalem, and they're the ones that went and, and stoned Stephen to death and Allah, Allah, there's Paul with them. Yeah, he was part of that synagogue. Because again, he's from the Greco-Roman world. He's from Tarsus. And um, yeah, he's a brave man. So he's withstanding the Jewish Christians who are looking at him with great skepticism. And he's gone back to his old friends, the ones that he approved of when they killed Stephen. So we're not surprised that it says he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. These are Hellenistic Greeks, Greek-speaking, uh, Greek-culture Jews living in Jerusalem. But they were seeking to kill him. I'm sure they were. Verse 30, And when the brothers, that's the Christian community, and when the brothers learned this, they, um, they and you see he's going to have to kind of flee again, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Um, again, several of you have been to Caesarea with me. That's that beautiful city on the Mediterranean coast, uh, remarkably excavated today, that city that um, um, Herod the Great, great because he was a builder, built in order to impress his Roman overlords. And it is, it's amazing. It's right there on the Mediterranean Sea. That's where the, that's where the Roman procurators, the Roman governors stayed. Unless they had to go to Jerusalem and to deal with those irritating Jews, they stayed there on the coast. Herod had a palace there. Uh, Caesarea, um, Caesarea Philippi's up north. This is Caesarea Maritima, which just simply means Caesarea on the coast, on the water, on the ocean. So uh, they 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 lead, they take him, they they help him escape from Jerusalem. 
um, some of the brothers, help him escape from Jerusalem, take him to Caesarea. And I think I've mentioned before, because we've already encountered Caesarea, one of the things that Herod the Great built there was um, a man-made harbor, which is still a feat of engineering um, work, um, man-made harbor, um, because he wanted to give uh, the land of Israel uh, a, a good harbor. Joppa didn't amount to much. They wanted to give him a good harbor. So, of course, you go to Caesarea Philippi to go somewhere. Caesarea Philippi received the world as the world would come to Israel. So they take him to Caesarea so they can get him on a boat and send him to Tarsus. And uh, you notice there, if you'd have kept reading in Galatians 1, the next thing you read is, I went back to Cilicia. Tarsus is a major city in Cilicia. Uh, I can't find, this can be your homework because I would love to know this. I keep trying to Google to see how much damage Tarsus has uh, had because of the earthquake. Tarsus is in um, eastern Turkey. Um, it's, it's a little ways away from the epicenter of the earthquake, but I, I can't seem to find anything about how much damage, if anything, was done to Tarsus. But Tarsus is right there near the earthquake, earthquake zone. Um, Tarsus was a major city in that region, ancient Asia Minor. That's what the Romans called it. We call it Turkey. Uh, major city there. The thing you need to know about Tarsus, uh, and I'm sure I've mentioned it before, again, to understand Paul, Tarsus was a university town. You know, when you think about Tarsus, think about Chapel Hill on steroids. It was a town built around a university. Again, Paul was brilliant. He, he grew up in Tarsus, that university town. Then he went to Jerusalem to be trained by Gamaliel. Um, that's one of the reasons. You, that's why when you read Paul, he's quoting pagan poets. He's making reference to pagan philosophers. He evidently knows... Um, the philosophical school of Stoicism really well. He uses some of the words. He learned all of that in Tarsus. That's why he had one foot in the Greco-Roman world and one foot in the Jewish world. You know, when God said, who would be the perfect person to send to the Gentile world with this message about a Jewish Messiah? Paul was that person. So he's from Tarsus, and that means something. Um, that's why later on when... Um, when Paul is uh, before Agrippa, it could be before the mob. One of the other times when Paul re recounts from his lips in the book of Acts about his conversion experience, he says, he refers to Tarsus as no mean city, which is a way of saying Tarsus is no... Tarsus is not climax. Tarsus is not Bessemer City in Gaston County. I'm trying not to offend any of you. Um, Tarsus is no average city. That's what Paul meant when he said Tarsus, no mean city. Tarsus was an amazing city, and you can't understand Paul unless you know something about Tarsus. That's why he was brilliant. That's why he could go out, once he turned to Christ, within a matter of hours almost, he could go out and logically preach Jesus to the community using the Hebrew Bible and probably Greek philosophy. If you go to Greece... Some of you are going with me there in April. If you go to Greece, one of my favorite things to see, because it makes me feel, I know pride can be sinful. It makes me grateful. If you go to Greece and you see the museum, the big museum of, in, in Athens, and Greeks are, Greeks are proud of their history, uh, their mythology and their history. If you see the great um, Athens Museum, the great Greece, Greek museum, um, when, you, when you're walking in that museum above the door, and it's a big, big building, uh, there's a fresco that goes across the front of it. And you've got Plato, you've got Socrates, you've got Euripides, you've got all these people that, you know, Hippocrates, you've got all these people that the Greeks still are very, very proud of. You go all the way to the right. Now, I, you know, I may be reading into it, but I'm, I'm going from lesser to greater. You go all the way to the, the right, the last one, there's the Apostle Paul. You know, which I would love to say, I don't know if they would agree with me, I'd love to say he is the apex, the epitome of Greek philosophy. He is the epitome of the best the Greek world has to offer. Plato's pretty good, Paul's better. So you, you know that kind of stuff when you know where Paul's from. And by the way, when you read Paul's writings, he was an extremely intelligent, well-educated person. And that's why the, I think that's why the church, 
here in these early days, protected Paul. They, they said, we need you, Paul. So let me get you out of Jerusalem, get you to Caesarea, and put you on a boat so you can go back to Tarsus. And we know what he did in Tarsus. Tarsus, the main city of Cilicia, we know what he did. You can't stop Paul from doing it. He preaches the gospel to those people. And at that point, it starts reaching into Asia Minor or present-day Turkey. Here comes one of Luke's summary statements. So look at verse 31. This is where we'll stop. Um, so the church, no singular here. They're all one. A lot of churches scattered around. You know, house churches, some synagogues probably that have embraced Jesus. But they're all united. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, Judea is where Jerusalem is, Galilee's to the north, Samaria's uh, uh, between them. Um, so all throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Again, I think because Paul quit doing what Saul was doing. Uh, they all had peace and was being built up. They were being edified. Um, the gospel spreading through this region. And walking in the fear or the reverence of the Lord, and in the comfort or the strengthening or the power or the consolation of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Again, Luke loves to give you these statements to show you um, that they, they were growing. They're continuing to grow. They're multiplying. Now, the interesting thing in verse 32, we'll pick up this after Ash Wednesday. In verse 32, you'll notice you're back to Peter. You're going to walk away from Paul for about 10 years in Paul's life. Um, just a few chapters in the book of Acts. But there's about a 10-year period here. Uh, why you why you lose sight of of Paul, and then we're going to be back to Peter for a while, and then you won't pick back up with Paul um, until um, chapter chapter eleven. You're going to pick back up in Paul when you when when you get when you get to Antioch, which again Antioch is Syria. This after Jerusalem, this early on after Jerusalem, the second most important city does was Antioch in Syria. So when you hear about Syria and Turkey, that's, that's our history there. That's our history there. But uh, yeah, they're going, for whatever reason, Luke, Luke's going to take you on a little detour, give you some more, more Peter stuff. And we get to meet people like Dorcas and, and Cornelius and folks like that. So that's where we'll stop. Start at verse 32, pick up Peter. Let, let Paul have a 10-year hiatus. Well, I'm sure the Lord's still preparing him for his greater ministry. And then we'll pick up there. Let's pray together. God, again, I'm thankful for these people who give attention to your word and who want to know their faith, who want to know the riches of their faith and not just a little taste of their faith. And God, we, we know that it doesn't take much faith to get us into heaven, but we want to, we want to know and receive and celebrate and be edified by all that you want to tell us, all that you want to give us. So, Lord, uh, keep us hungry for more of you. Keep us thirsting for more of your living water. And help us to seek to put you first and foremost in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Make some new friends.